You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, Two segments this week, three guests. First up, Kevin Clark, the NFL writer, podcaster, and video host for The Ringer. Uh, He does exceptional work. His his features on uh, on the NFL are really good, very, very unique. Uh, You may remember Kevin, too, from uh, covering the NFL for The Wall Street Journal. But uh, he's absolutely one of the best in the business. And we talk about the stories that he's interested in this year and um, what kind of year he think it will be, and then just how he goes about um, doing the work that he does. So if you're interested in Kevin's work, um, uh, check that out. I enjoyed that conversation. He is followed by a roundtable with Kavitha Davidson, my colleague, The Athletic, a sports and culture writer there, and the host of the Culture Calculus podcast, and Chad Finn, the sports media writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. And uh, we have a roundtable on what we think will be the dominant story of the NFL season, uh, access uh, restrictions now in the NFL because of COVID, the nexus of gambling in the NFL. We go into that and the, sort of the ethical quagmires that exist there. Um, whether uh, college football broadcasters should talk about COVID protocols um, and offer some nuance as um, as they're broadcasting uh, these games. We all agree college football, uh, the numbers should be uh, much, much bigger this year, certainly from 2020. There's just so much excitement uh, when you're watching these games and people, I think, want to see people in the crowd. Um, so we get, uh, we have, I think, a, what I hope is a nuanced discussion about that. And then we finish up with John Smoltz and Al Leiter, where uh, uh, Chad and uh, Kavitha do not hold back on their opinions there. So Kevin Clark to start, Chad Finn and Kavitha Davidson to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Kevin Clark is an NFL writer, podcaster, video host, for the ringer Uh, i mean a major star in that world he previously covered the nfl for the wall street journal he's been on this podcast before and i like having him on as we're about to start the nfl season kevin thank you for uh, returning to the sports media podcast thank you for having me richard i'm very excited all right so kevin one of the things um i you know i've told this to you off air and uh i'll certainly say it on air i just i think um you're really skilled and gifted at choosing interesting stories in the NFL and then sort of presenting them in in an interesting way through your reporting, uh, through the length of your story, just sort of how you approach it. So let me start with a very general question here. Um, what stories are you most interested in at the start of the 2021 season? I feel like there's a return to normalcy that even though I think that it's, it's not going to be normal for maybe even 
a year plus um, in the NFL like it was in 2019. I think there's a return to normalcy that is going to sort of permeate through the league. Um, when I was talking to people inside the league about practices last year or just how they ran their team, I think the general consensus was that everything sucked. And every, even teams that won last year were like, you know what, this, this just wasn't, didn't feel like real football. There were guys in the league who didn't even meet some of their teammates um, throughout, you know, in any meaningful way. They would see them at practice, and that's about it. Um, there were team employees that didn't meet the rookies. I mean, it was just such a stilted year. I think that as things return to normal, I think you're going to see a little bit more within the league of – I would say maybe a celebration of football, like kind of a, they missed it so much. They missed the real aspect of it last year. Um, I remember someone was on our podcast last year, someone from the NFL, and they were basically just like the, the motivating force in the middle of the season when, when it becomes the dog days is that these guys don't want to let the guy next to them down or, you know, it's just such, it's a strong locker room or whatever it is. Well, last year guys couldn't go out for a beer. Guys couldn't go out to lunch and even know each other. And so I think the emotional rebound, I guess I would say is, is the big picture topic. And then there's just within that, all of these people who have popped up who are now relevant figures. You know, I, I profiled Andrew Barry, the Browns GM today. Um, Dan Campbell is somebody I talked to last week. Um, and, and so I think there's a whole new cast of characters that are relevant. And I think that there's just coming out of last year, which, which was such a stilted year. I just think there's just a lot to get to. And there's a lot of intriguing storylines for you. Um, you know, I've, I've read both those speeches, which I really, really liked. Um, you clearly try. I certainly know you traveled for the for the Dan Campbell piece. I imagine you traveled for the other one as well. Um, how has COVID or where we are in COVID changed your approach to stories? Are you are, are you able to basically now just do any story that you wish no. because the the. No, you're not. Okay, so travel still is a factor. No, tra travel is a factor. So there were two th two huge things that COVID changed for me this year. Number one is I couldn't go to a city just to go. So there are certain places. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to Indianapolis. D you know, it was kind of in between stops. I had one or two requests, but I just wanted to watch practice, right? I didn't do those types of trips this year because I didn't want to do an extra day in a hotel and, and be traveling and all that stuff. So for me, it was a little more surgical. What I mean by that is I went to Green Bay said I want the GM and Aaron Rodgers and that was it the thing you can't do is is BS and just kind of say hey I'm gonna go on a fishing expedition and talk to this guy um so it was a little bit more of that it was I went to Buffalo Green Bay Kansas City and Cincinnati and in those places I asked for the quarterback I got 15 to 20 minutes with each quarterback and I wrote it up immediately it was very much see the ball hit the ball um, whereas in a different year, it's, hey, I'll get Mahomes, but I'll also, hey, wh why don't I check in on the Honey Badger? Why don't I check in on Tyreek Hill or, or Travis Kelsey? It wasn't that this year because it was just so, first of all, it was so strange with the testing and all that stuff, but also it, it, there were so many different protocols and so many different things you couldn't do that um, you had to really kind of over, pre-plan, I guess you could say. So I, I was in, I spent 21 days on the road. There were a lot of places I spent two or three days on, which is not normal for me. I normally do one team in one day and, and then move on. So it was a little more methodical, I would say. And then also, I mean, I, I spent the whole time pretty concerned about COVID on the road. I mean, I was in hotels that were uh, fairly okay hotels and, and, and not a lot of people took COVID seriously. And so for someone who doesn't want to, and I was testing myself every couple of days. The NFL mandate was every two weeks. And then there were, there were two teams 
uh, that tested at the door um, to make sure that you you didn't have it before you went in uh, into the facility. But I was testing myself kind of above and beyond that because I just I just wanted to make sure um, because I you know the the worst the thing I the thing that kept me up at night, Richard, was the idea that God forbid I had it and then I've got to call. Uh, you know, the PR director of a team and say, Hey, you know, you're starting quarterback. Uh, he's a close contact of mine, you know? And so I, I was just extremely careful for three weeks. You, you, um, you have undoubtedly seen the NFL's last, um, memo about, uh, restricting game day access to 50, Mm -hmm. uh, personnel, including people on the team executives. And the only media who are allowed in terms of locker room access are going to be those who work for the -hmm. team. Um, how will that this year impact you? Will that uh, will that impact you, or because of what you do for the Ringer, can you still get the people you want to get? Let's say on practice days of the facilities or or off days. Is that yeah? Does the game does the game protocol? Maybe the game protocol doesn't impact you given what you do as much. I don't necessarily. I go to games late in the year if I need something specific, um, and I need to get three, four, or five guys at once. And that, that's what's not going to happen this year, and that's fine. Um, there's a, certainly a lot bigger problems in the world right now that whether or not I'm going to be able to get Calais Campbell in in Baltimore in December. Okay, like that's pretty far down on the list of worldwide concerns right now. Um, I think it's going to hurt the beat writers and it hurts the flow of information. I think that I have so much respect for every single beat writer because no national writer could do their job without them, and, and I'm in awe of some of these these folks who come up with consistently good topics and good angles every single week. And that to me is what I think is going to hurt here is, you know, I I covered college football when I was really young and they just wouldn't, because there was no open locker room. If there wasn't, you know, if the defense choked, a school might not put any defenders out there to talk to the media um, or might tell them to go through the, the back exit or whatever. And you don't get to tell the full story. And so that that's my concern um, is that, that their teams will be used this to sort of duck out on media policies and make it a little more uh, college-y. And, but I, I don't, I, again, I, I think eventually they'll, things will return to normal. Um, it just in the short term, Concerns me a, a little bit just from a storytelling aspect, but again, but that there's there's bigger problems in the world right now. So I think it'll it'll make a difference. Um, you know, again, I think I can probably get people midweek at the facility. It's just going to have to be a little more methodical. And you know, one of the things I really like doing is one of the, my my tricks, I guess you could say, is I like to go into locker rooms, Richard, and just get as many anecdotes about somebody as possible. So if I go into Buffalo, I want to say to 15 guys in the roster. Hey, tell me your favorite Josh Allen story. What's the most impressive Josh Allen throw you've ever seen? That's not going to be able to happen this year. And and that is, you know, I might get three guys on that and I might have to get more time with Josh and more time with Dable or whatever, but so yeah, from a from a storytelling aspect things change, but I'm not uh, I'm not going to freak out about it in the first couple of months because we're just at a at a weird place in, in the world right now. One of the things is pretty obvious, you know, like like my my colleague, let's say at the Athletic, who covers the Falcons yeah. or who covers the Rams, it's pretty obvious like who their competition is. Although that even sort of premise at this point sort of maybe seems outdated because like <laughs> like in theory, like everybody is everybody's competition, you know, like like competition is uh, is just people's time, yeah. et cetera. But you really do stuff that, generally speaking, like isn't being done by by other people so when you do these stories like do you even consider like any other outlet or reporter competition or do you in some ways you really feel like you're sort of a you're in your own silo so i had an editor sam walker at the wall street journal who actually we, we used to talk about this a lot and he used to say that 
and this was a business thing, I guess. He had studied a lot of businesses, but uh, I guess it was the startup world, actually, he was borrowing it from. But he basically said, if you have competition, you've already lost. Um, and it, it means your idea is unoriginal and that you it, it's not even worth doing. And I, I took that to heart. And I think that I, I've, I've talked about this before, but Sam's advice to me, which I think is probably the most important advice I've ever gotten in my life, is that, from my journalism life, is that you should report a story where the first quote in every story can be, I've never seen anything like it. Because if you have an original idea and everybody wants to talk about it and no one's literally seen anything like it, then you've got something worth publishing. And I think, Richard, you, you remember, I mean, the Wall Street Journal sports section is still awesome and it still has amazing people. Um, and, but when I was there, I felt like we had one, we ran one story a day and the competition to get in the paper was huge. And so you had to pre-plan, pre-sort of report all of this stuff, and you had to clear this really high bar. And so when you talk about competition, my competition, I'm my own worst critic. My competition is, is, is myself because of that mentality, because I still have the old school Wall Street Journal, hey, if you don't write a good story, it's not getting published mentality. We didn't, we didn't go for singles. We didn't go for doubles. We, we went for, for triples and home runs. And so that, that's still in my in my brain um, and probably will never get out. So I don't feel, I think maybe on topics, I feel like I, you know, if someone else wrote a Dan Campbell profile before me, I would have kicked myself, but it wouldn't have been the same. I mean, I just think I, I, I try to sharpen the angle so much that, that I wouldn't have to worry about anybody doing the same, the same story that, that I'm doing. Um, and so I don't, I, 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 to your point, I, I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what other people are doing, except to say that there's so many good people who are providing great information, great quotes, great, great reporting that I read almost everybody. I just hope to, my goal is to take that stuff and shape it a little bit differently to the point that, that no one's going to have my exact angle. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, I want to ask you just briefly, uh, about the nexus of gambling in the NFL. Mm. Um, it's a topic now that, um, has so many tentacles. Um, you know, a lot of like what I write about and do, um, will be about, you know, what, what's the content play for these networks? How much are they going to talk about it? There's certainly a business angle to it in terms of like, you know, the NFL's just signed multi, multi multi-million dollar deals with these, uh, sports books you know your place the ringer has certainly Mm -hmm. embraced it um does it impact what you do at all and um and do you have any sort of views on how uh in your short time covering the nfl the league has gone from very much sort of hands off this is not a world we want to be part of to um you know opening up the vault basically and inviting the cash to come in it's actually crazy how quickly it shifted to the nfl cutting deals um, from what, where they were when I started on this beat seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, it used to be, it, it, Al Michaels was the biggest renegade on the planet for even hinting at the point spread in the fourth quarter of a, of a preseason game, right? And now they've embraced it and, and they understand what it can do. And I think there's research that shows that, that viewers stay with the game longer if they have money on the over or the point spread or the money line or whatever it is. 
I don't gamble on football. I'll probably never gamble on football. I gamble on other things. I gamble on golf. I gamble on combat sports, boxing, um, a little bit of Formula One, although that, that, that's really hard to do. But I, I think from my job, I you know I, I've I've said this many times before, but I gamble on golf a lot, and if it's the Masters and Xander Shoffley misses a four foot putt that would have won me a bunch of money. I'm pretty mad at Xander Shoffley and not, you know, I'm not going to freak out about it, but I, you know, I'm like, come on, man. And I always think for my job, if God forbid, I lost a bunch of money because Matt Ryan, you know, threw it through a pick six in, in the red zone uh, in the fourth quarter, you know, I don't want to have any shading of that in my, in my opinion, the next time that I sit down with Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan was on slow news day last week. I, you know, I, I just don't want anything where that could impact it because you know you're just you're just trying when you're a, a, a national b right you're just trying to fly a plane here man and and you're just going through it and you're so busy and all this stuff and i just don't want any externalities i guess you would say what, what as, as coaches would say it uh, any distractions on that regard having said that you cannot tell the story of football now in 2021 without talking about gambling like even in the andrew berry piece today richard i mentioned that the the browns are fourth favorite in the afc because it's good context and it's good. You know, when we did our division picks on the podcast, I went through the odds because it's, it, they're really smart people who are predicting it with actual numbers. It's not just, you know, some random magazine guide you pick up at Barnes and Noble who's saying this is going to be one through four. It's people who are actually putting their money where their mouth is and have a business around the predictions. So I have, I have no problem citing those things. If I say, Hey, uh, this so-and-so Matthew Stafford, great example. I picked Matthew Stafford to win the MVP last, uh, last week. And I think he's fifth favorite in the NFL. Well, that tells me that I'm not totally off base. And that there's other people who think that. So it's, for me, it's a storytelling device and not necessarily something that I have to do and then sit on a couch. You know, I think some of the, some of the, especially the golf gamblers where, you know, they, 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 they stream their reaction to putts and stuff. Like that's probably not anything I'm ever going to get involved in, but what I can do is take the gambling aspect and, and tell good stories around it. One of the, um, one of the questions that becomes sort of an ethical question on all this stuff. And I want to, um, and I want to sort of see how you, feel about mm -hmm. it uh because it's one of those things where it's a gray area i don't know if there's a there's a right or a, or a wrong it's sort of just how you process it how would you feel let, let me ask you this in the course of your reporting mm -hmm. if you found out what um was truly inside information that you felt was a advantage when it came to making a bet on the nfl would you use that information to bet on it yourself would you provide that information for readers I would never, first of all, to answer your question, I would never use inf inside information to bet anything. I, I, that's one of the reasons I wouldn't bet to begin with. Um, you know, it's interesting. The, the NFL has a fantasy football policy, and in it, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the rule is you can only go on publicly traded information because, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the equivalent of insider trading, right? If you know so-and-so is going to be out on Friday or, or the transaction wire is going to say so-and-so has been cut and this guy's the starter, that, that's a big deal in fantasy. I would do everything I can to get the information out to the public. I mean, that, that, that happens a lot, especially with fantasy football, where someone will say, hey, this guy's going to get the lion's share of carries and, and just get that information out to, to the public. Um, I would, I'm always thinking about the reader. One of the things, Richard, that I, I value myself on is coaches and GMs always want to go off the record on anything. 
And I hate that. And I'm like, you know what I want to do? I want to write a 1500 word story with the best quotes possible because I'm trying to serve the reader. I don't, I'm not trying to win a trivia contest here and find out fun facts about you that I can't print. I don't want to know any inside information that's not going to eventually show up in my job. And the guys love doing that. Guys, they turn the tape recorder off and then just tell me something that I can never print. I want to serve the readers. I'm thinking about my readers and my bosses first before I'm thinking about whether or not I get to go to PJ Clark's and get three beers in and tell you exactly what this GM thinks. That's not helping anybody. That, that's, the, that's the BS, uh, you know, it's a, it's a BS cycle. And so for me, if I got inside information that would impact the game at hand that weekend, I would do everything I could to get it out. What, um, what are, you know, one of the things that um, when the athletics started, obviously, uh, that they tried to sort of figure out and how best to sort of go after was, you know, how do you get the teams that we're going to cover to credential you to sort of acknowledge you as a, as an outlet um, that can get access. What, um, you know, ringer's now been around for a while. Uh, what do the NFL public relations establishment um, think of the ringer? In your opinion, how do they view your publication? Pretty positively, I would say. Um, I have had, I, I really don't want to re- relitigate this, but I have had one GM ever who's no longer a GM who did not grant me access. And I heard through the grapevine it was because uh, Bill Simmons had said negative things about them, which, by the way, were justified. This GM has now been fired. Um, but that's the only experience uh, where I've ever had that. And I've had a couple of teams, you know, because we, we wear many hats. Um, analyst, reporter, host, whatever it is. Uh, we tend to say things that, that rip teams. I tend to say things that rip teams. And I've had some candid conversations with teams about that when, and I'm saying, hey, I'm, I'm putting on my, my reporter hat here. This is not about what I said on a podcast last, last year or whatever. And that tends to be fine. I would say that the ringer, I think maybe the first season, it took a lot of, I had my relationships with, with, with the PR staffs, the coaches, the GMs, the quarterbacks, whomever. Um, and I think it took a year for me to kind of explain what the ringer was. You know, it launched in June of 2016. And so it was right before the NFL season. We just hadn't gotten a ton of, uh, you know, it's like anything that launches. It, it, it took a couple of months for people to, to see it and sort of um, internalize what it was. And then I think by year two, everything was fine. I, I never had an access problem. You know, I've gotten Aaron Rodgers every single time I've been to Green Bay since I've been at the ringer. Um, you know, Mahomes pretty much the same way. Um, both those guys I got in the last month. Um, and so I think that between kind of the, my, my relationships that I've always had with these guys and then the ringer being a pretty substantial national outlet, I haven't, I haven't had a, a problem at all. Um, and I think that they kind of, they kind of like it. It's cool. Um, and I think that there are, I, 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 I've been pretty surprised i guess you could say at how quickly the league embraced the ringer um starting and I, I would say maybe 2017 and my guess would be for the podcast that you're on you know the nfl show and slow news day my my guess would be that because the ringer is so prominent in audio so prominent in podcasting and does have like uh you know, I think for some players, kind of like a culture mm-hmm. cool to be yeah. part of. You know, it's yes. not the Wall Street Journal. And there's no disrespect to the Wall Street <laughs> Journal or, you know, or New York Times or whatever. Sure. But, like, I feel like that that would be, at least for some players, kind of interesting and cool. So my guess is, and this is a pure guess, that when it comes to booking um, for any kind of audio podcast, like, I bet you your response rate is really good. Pretty good, yeah. I mean, we were just talking talking about that, actually. Um, 
the I would say for Slow News Day or or the podcast, I, we can pretty much get whomever. I mean, there, there's a level there where you know, like Lamar Jackson came on last summer and he was promoting something, right? And so the and that that's kind of how he's promoting Madden, which was fine. It's still football, but I think for a certain level of guy, you're always gonna have to play that particular game. Um, right. But I would say that otherwise, we've had some pretty good success for guys who are just who are just doing. Uh, who just want to come on and have fun. And I think that one thing about slow news day, Richard is like, we want to, we want to portray these guys when they're on video as the best hang possible. Like I remember my, my former producer, Jason Gallagher said that about Lamar when we were on there. He was like, you know, we're editing it, not editing it. We're, we were, what we're trying to portray is what the truth was, which is that Lamar is a great hang when you're hanging out with him for 20 minutes over zoom. And he can talk about football. He can talk about life. He can talk about whatever. And I think that, other guys see that. I mean, we were mostly a Twitter show, mostly an Instagram show. It gets a few hundred thousand views if, if um, you know, during, during the season and all that stuff um, per week. And I think that if there are NFL stars or media members who, I mean, they've reached out to me and they say, I want to come on Slow News Day. And because they see how we put them in a light where it's like, okay, we're just hanging out over zoom. We, we you know if, if, if we, if we brought out a, a keg, it wouldn't be out of place. Right. Um, and so where is, there is no drinking on Slow news day, but there could be right. Um, and, and that to me, I think um, leads to other, other people wanting to say yes to things. And I would also say all access is like that. You know, if you go, I think that a lot of times, you know, on my training camp tour this week, I'm not saying this is the case, but I got Josh Allen, Rogers, Mahomes, and then I got, Burrow at the end. Burrow is coming off an injury. He's coming off of a um, of couple of weird weeks of practice. You know, he was he was Joe Cool a year and a half ago, and now things are not going that well for him. And it could have been easy for him to say no, but I think access leads to more access. And I think that someone like Burrow, not that I'm saying he's sitting around reading the Ringer, but like if you get all these other guys, um, I think it just becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, and and you start to get other people. Like I did not, the only person I did not get on my entire training camp tour was Mike Zimmer because he was dealing with a lot of the um, Kirk Cousins <laughs> fallout, uh, and he was just swamped with requests but i would say that that access begats access i got two more for you um one do you have any kind of word count restrictions because one of the things i've noticed from your pieces on the ringer is you know you're able to go long and it reminds me a lot of um you know sort of the hey daily so when i you know when i worked and even before i worked there sports illustrated and when like you would not be surprised to read a 4,500, 5,000 word profile on a, on an NFL player. Yeah. So I, I don't have, I mean, there's a workflow restriction. If I, if I, if I gave them a 7,000 word story, it would put a lot of stress on the copy desk. It would put a lot of my uh, stress on my editor, Connor Nevins. Um, and so I try to keep it under 3,000 if possible. I think the Andrew Barry story was around 3,000. You know, I think that it depends on the story. You know, I, I, the best advice I got on this stuff was two years ago, three years ago, I had gotten Rogers um, about a bunch of league issues, things like the franchise tag. I mean, it was a really cool story. I remember talking to my editor, Ryan O'Hanlon, and he was like, okay, listen, like you have gold. You have 20 minutes of Aaron Rodgers talking about just addressing all the stuff in the league. And if we run every word he says, that'll be fine. And you end up writing, you know, what, 2,500 words, and it's just Rogers talking. And so we don't want to shortchange. If someone gives us the time and gives us the interview, we don't want to shortchange that. And whether that's Burrow or, or Mahomes or whomever, like get that stuff out there. Dan Campbell, you know, with Barry, um, kind of a similar deal. You know, Barry didn't light up my notebook in the same way that some of these other guys did. Um, but this is a really thoughtful guy who spent time with us. And so we want to give that um, a full shift. And we don't want to, to shortchange that kind of stuff. So I don't have a word count. 
Uh, it's more of it fits the story. I think it'd be weird if I get a guy, if tomorrow I get Daniel Jones for five minutes and I write 5,000 words on it, that's probably when it becomes a problem. But if I get Daniel Jones or, or Sam Darnold or whomever for an hour, then you can get longer with it. So I think that we we just go we'll operate within reason and decide what, what word counts can be. But I, I have an amazing editor, Connor. I have an amazing copy desk. Everybody supports me. So um, I just want to keep them in mind and, and just really kind of keep it to what the story demands. Then the last one for me, um, and I think this sort of question would have been maybe more prominent or perhaps even more interesting in a pre-COVID world. But the, the, the COVID world now, you know, for many of us in this uh, in this profession, we're, we're all working from home. Mm-hmm. We're all, we're not going to a physical office. You know, the person we might interact with every day may live 3,000, 2,000 miles away. <laughs> yeah. um, you live in New York. I live in Brooklyn. And the... Brooklyn, okay. The Ringer's main office is, is it still in Los Angeles? Yes. Okay. Um, how does that, how, how has that worked for you? Do you feel, is there any part of you that feels um, disconnected? Or, like I was saying, because we're now in this new paradigm where no, nobody's really yeah. at an office, that, you know, maybe you're, what you do now is just sort of what everybody's going to do for, you know, the next 20, 25, 30 years or so. And it's a, um, you know, geography doesn't really matter when you can slack somebody. Yeah, I would say, so that question might be different in a year when everything is 100% back to normal, hopefully, fingers crossed. I haven't noticed anything. You know, my wife and I lived in St. Augustine, Florida during work from home um, for a handful of reasons um, in the fall. And so we haven't lived in LA for almost a year. And I still talk to Bill all the time. I still talk to Mallory Rubin, um, who's my manager, all the time. And I think maybe because we have a young staff, we're more interconnected and we're on text or Slack or, or FaceTime or whatever it is. So it feels like we're all working together. Um, my Sunday night podcast is with Nora Princiati. She's also on the Upper East Side of, of Manhattan. And then Ben Solak is in Michigan. And Stephen Ruiz, um, both those guys just joined us, is in Washington, D.C. So I, don't, I, I think that maybe when The Ringer launched, there was more of a demand for everybody to be in the same place. But I kind of think as things have dissipated, you know, Spotify's policy now, um, it's been publicly announced is that we can work from anywhere. And I, I think I, it would have been fine if I lived in New York regardless, because Spotify has offices here and Gimlin has offices here. Um, but I think that we're just in an era now, especially with media, where as long as I'm in LA a couple of times a year and meet with these people and stay connected, I, I, I think it's all fine. I mean, the fact that if I, if I wasn't talking to my bosses regularly, I would maybe have, have more of a concern there, but I, I have not noticed anything. I, I don't, I feel like we haven't skipped a beat. If anything, we're more efficient than, than we were. And so, no, I think that there's a new era of work. I think there's a new era of media. And I think that, you know, it can solve Richard, some of the problems in, in media, um, for younger kids. I mean, one of the things I, I worry about all the time is, you know, when I was coming up, New York was the epicenter of media. Um, same as you. And it became a self-fulfilling thing where the only people who got into the media were the kids who were able to afford moving to New York without a really good job at age 22. Um, and so I actually think that this could end up being beneficial for, for media, that you can be anywhere and you can be in, in the middle of the country, you can be in a different country. Um, and it actually, it, there's probably less, less gatekeeping, I would say, going forward. I agree with you. And uh, as I look back on it, it it's like mind-blowing to think that... Uh, when I first started, like at Sports Illustrated, like we had like multiple floors on a 
building on West 50th Street across from Radio City Music Hall. Like, like to think about the dollar cost yeah. that those offices uh, um, were for, you know, at that time, it was, would have been Time, Inc. Um, it's like my, it's like head spinning. Now that, you know, in 2021, um, I work for a place now where, you know, um, geography is meaningless. You can sort of work and file um, from anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, the ringer in that sense is in a really good place. Uh, Kevin Clark is an NFL writer, podcaster, and video host for The Ringer. Uh, he's mentioned a number of the things that he's um, he's doing now. You obviously can catch him weekly on uh, on the multiple podcasts that he does. And check his uh, his NFL work out. His, um, his last couple of pieces um, are really, really uh, interesting. And, oh, thank uh, you, Richard. You know, he went... Uh, he went super long on um, on um, Dan Campbell, the coach, the new coach of uh, the Lions, who uh, um, is, a, is an interesting guy. And Andrew Berry, who I find actually is even more interesting, who's this uh, born in nineteen eighty seven, Richard. Uh, I no, hate crazy. it. This front this front office phenom who really like um, you know almost like feels like a little Patrick Mahomes ish of his uh, of what he does. I have That's to a, shout out once again. Richard Deitch gave me the names of all of these Sports Illustrated editors to email because they gave him my clips when I was 19 years old. They all turned me down, but it was a huge help. Richard Deitch is the man. Oh, oh that's very. We were in Tampa, remember? Memory. I do. Of course I remember. Yeah. Um, and not surprisingly, the idiot editors at my place, once again, did not hire a good young talent. It was so actually that, amazing. That's the, only, that's the only non-surprising part. It was actually story. amazing the swiftness with which they rejected me. But at least they, they wrote they back. Did. Yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, and uh, and look where you are now. But that's very nice of you to say, and I do remember that. That was at the Pointer Institute, maybe? It was. Right? Like it was you, Pat Forty was there, Jamel Hill was there as a speaker, Dan yeah. Jenkins, Sally Jenkins. It was actually a formative weekend in my uh That feels in my it just crazy to life. think about. I, like, that feels like a long... That feel, we were, I think we got there on horseback. That's how long ago it was. If I'm not mistaken, I heard a couple <laughs> of ESPN executives told me that's actually where they met Jamel Hill. That could be the case, because if I... Again, my memory's hazy. I believe she was at the Orlando Sentinel. She was. she was not at ESPN. She was not. And, um, and that's very, very possible. And then obviously got hired by ESPN and, and became very, very well known. But then I remember that. Jamel was just, she was just a columnist, a yep. sports columnist at the, at the Orlando I was growing Sentinel. up in Orlando, and I, I remember reading her weekly. And I, everyone, everyone kind of knew that she was destined for, for, uh, for bigger things. Yeah, crazy. All right, Kevin, listen, man, keep up the excellent work. I will, uh, I'll be clicking and... Uh, and reading and thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the sports media podcast awesome thank you richard i'm mark chapman welcome to the planet premier league podcast each week ses fabregas nader manua and myself talk all things premier league as a player you don't have time to talk no. you don't have time to make a plan you just need to deal with wave after wave after wave we watched coach carter and he said oh afterwards the game's just about doing this for your teammates and i remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep <laughs> planet premier league listen wherever you get your podcasts All right, so we head to the uh, the roundtable section of this podcast, starting, well, not really starting with, I mean, these are both, uh, both of these guests are get, get equal billing. Kavitha Davidson is a sports and culture writer for The Athletic, the host of the Culture Calculus podcast. She's been on this podcast many times, as has Chad Finn, the sports media writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. But the one thing I did discover prior to going on this podcast is you two have never met, correct, Kavitha?
Yeah. It's amazing how many, Chad, how many like relationships probably just exist in the media world on social media only. And it's always interesting to me, like, would you get along with this person in person? The likelihood is you might get along with a person in person better than you do on social media, or it could go the other way and you'd be like, holy shit, I don't want this person part of no, not in person. We have interacted on Twitter, and this is the first time we have actually exchanged words. I think I probably met you through Twitter. That, the, the first time I met you was at, uh, I think, the uh, Olympics in London. Yeah, I'm the first to admit. I think in real life, I'm much, uh, I'm, I'm much more charming. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good friend. My Twitter feed sometimes can be horrible. I'm really trying to push it back so it's not as awful as it has been. But like the world is a little bit of a of a of a tinderbox at the moment, and I'm the first to admit I don't follow me on Twitter. Like I'm actively telling anyone listening right now, avoid my content. It's not very good at the moment. So um, so yeah, I feel like in real, I feel like it, I feel like an IRL Kavitha, as you kids would say. I feel like I'm a I'm a better fit. It's always one of those things, though, when you when you go to some kind of media event or press event with a bunch of sports reporters and you meet a lot of people who you only know through Twitter and you're like, oh, now I can put an actual face to that dinosaur avatar that I've been seeing. Yeah, that's right. I met my co-author on my book. We never met in person until we signed a book deal together and we were like best friends at that point. <laughs> like, wow. No, that's yeah. That's I mean, amazing. Again, social media, in theory, was an incredibly revolutionary idea which in theory should bring the world together and and um create a, a better planet and an improved planet unfortunately <laughs> narrator colon well that's not exactly what happened all right anyway let's let's move on to uh let's move on to the nfl which is why we're here all right kavitha i'm starting with you very open-ended question what do you think will be the most dominant story this season in the nfl uh, I, I wish that we couldn't say this a year later, but I do think it's going to continue to be COVID. I think it's going to continue to be, especially the teams whose quarterbacks have not been vaccinated, um, what that's going to mean. I mean, we just had the NFLPA call for daily testing, which sounds great in theory, but I think everyone kind of agrees is a way to get rid of the inconvenient incentive to get vaccinated. So I think this is just going to continue to be, frankly, a hot mess. And if you talk to anyone in a front office, they're saying, listen, we're trying to make it, we're trying to make life as miserable as possible basically for guys who are not vaccinated just to get them to get the shot and it's making the rest of us miserable so what about you chad yeah that's absolutely it i mean we heard uh we heard tom brady say the other day that he he got covid after uh the box super bowl party and got vaccinated and uh this is a guy who was um pushing sort of some sort of protein powder or something like that, that had these very vague uh, implications or indications that it, it uh, might help prevent COVID or um, that just felt kind of shady. And it made you wonder if he was going to get vaccinated and he has, and he spoke about it the other day. Part of it's uh, his just he's an insane competitor, all time insane, insane competitor. But beyond that, um, he talked about how he thinks that's going to have a huge effect on this season. And it's a competitive advantage for teams like the Bucks, who have 100 percent vaccination right now to to uh, uh, get those benefits from the football benefits from being vaccinated. The competitive advantage benefits that um, are going to hurt teams like, uh, you know, maybe uh, I don't know what Buffalo's rate was, but it was pretty bad for a while. 
um, or, or other teams that are immediately going to put themselves at a disadvantage because they're not believing the science and what the team trainers are telling them. And uh, there are going to be significant issues this year, probably uh, pretty similar to last year. So, Kathith, let me push back on this. Well, well, obviously, I don't disagree with you in chat. I mean, people are going to test positive. Better not. It's um, it's certainly going to be an issue. But because, like, on game broadcasts, this, generally speaking, is rarely talked about. It may be talked about a little bit in the pregame, but the game broadcast is really – it's really just a promotional vehicle for the NFL. My sense is the bigger stories are going to be like, you know, will the Bucks repeat? Um, How is Mac Jones going to do in – New England, you know, what is, what is, how good is, uh, you know, can, can the Bills overcome the, the Chiefs and be the AFC representative? Um, am I, that's not to say obviously traditional sports reporters, sports writers are not, they're going to cover this, but am I being naive? You think in that, I feel like the, I don't know, it just feels like the storylines are going to, are going to supersede COVID because I, I feel like maybe the NFL, I'm not, I don't know how much the NFL audience unfortunately even cares that that Kirk Cousins feels how Kirk Cousins does you know I I don't disagree with you on that and I think it's actually the opposite of of you being naive I think you're being rightfully cynical because the NFL I mean all throughout last year all throughout all throughout last summer right when we were in the throes of this virus the NFL acted completely like business as usual and frankly were rewarded for it like the other than the one game where the Broncos had zero quarterbacks like there wasn't really a giant disaster thankfully I think that none of us are rooting for disaster to happen Um, but the NFL was able to go about business as usual and to kind of pretend that we weren't in a global pandemic. So I don't actually see that changing from from the storyline perspective. I do think that this is going to continue to be a narrative and this will be, you know, especially as we have some breakthrough cases and and you know, I I can't imagine what it's like to be a vaccinated player we haven't heard a lot of those frustrations either, but you know that that's brewing below the surface. And I can't imagine that there's a ton of unity in the NFLPA right now around this. Chad, I want to ask you about um, game day access. Um, I, I know you have covered, I don't know if you've covered the Patriots on a day-to-day basis. Obviously, there are Boston Globe uh, beat reporters who do that. Uh, Kavitha, I don't know if, um, uh, you, you obviously have written about the NFL. I'm not, I'm not sure you're one who would be going every uh, Jets or Giants game, but that the NFL has set limits on game day access to locker rooms. Um, I think last I saw limited to 50 fully vaccinated team staffers in addition to players and only media members affiliated with teams are allowed to enter a locker room. So those are, those are the media. Um, those are the people who work for like the Miami dolphins.com or if that's even a site, you know what I mean? He, uh, you know, Buffalo bills.com. So, um, so as of now, if I'm reading this correctly, that means that reporters will be uh, talking to players and coaches and personnel via Zoom, or you know, if they obviously have cell phone numbers, maybe they're they're able to get contact um, that way. What do you think that means, Chad? I mean, you work the Boston Globe. Obviously, there's a massive desire for uh, from Patriot fans who want to read about the the team. But it looks to me that your reporter is not going to get traditional access um, because of uh, because of COVID protocols at the moment. Yeah, what the, the number is 50 that they're allowing into the locker room of, of team personnel and media, which really limits the number of media. Um, I talked to Kevin Harlan this morning, uh, who has the first two Patriots games this season with Trent Green for CBS. And uh, they don't know if they're talking to the uh, coaches and players in person or via Zoom yet. Once they get here, they're going to be on site. 
But uh, if they come in Saturday morning, which is the plan right now, um, they don't know if they're going to uh, see these people in person like they would have two years ago or if it's going to be the same setup as last year, which just kind of tells you how many how much is still in flux with all of this. Um, the access right now, uh, there were some concerns with us at the Globe that uh, they were prioritizing other outlets in the market initially that might be able to get some access that we wouldn't. Because, and I looked into it. I talked to Patriots and talked to um, other TV stations and things like that around Boston. And uh, who is allowed in is the team reporters. So Kraft, for here in New England, it's Kraft Sports Group um, and at the Patriots.com reporters. NFL Films people are still allowed in. And the broadcast team uh, and uh, producers from – uh, the, the the network that's covering the game. So theoretically, uh, the Romo and Nance, whatever game they have, was it the Chiefs, uh, Chiefs Browns? Is that what it is? Uh, would be allowed in the locker room to talk to people, but it still feels like that's uh, that's a little bit tenuous here, uh, even as we get closer to the kickoff. Kavitha, one of the one of the things that gets talked about in our world, and rightfully so, is does this become a precursor to less access? for those who cover the NFL. The one thing about the NFL is there one there are a ton of people covering it, two it's a pretty strong group of of outlets and writers who demand access. And the NFL interestingly enough has been a league that has want that has really pushed for access among media. So while I I I do believe that some sports will sort of come out of COVID and reduce ac- the access that previously existed. I'm not ready to say that yet about the NFL based on its history. How do you read that? I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the NFL recognizes how much um, how much good the exposure is, like just from a very baseline level. I do think that this is a fear that everyone around sports reporting has been having for at least a year now. I mean, if you talk to any of our colleagues who cover baseball right now, they have no idea why they're still doing Zoom interviews when they're in the ballpark. Um, I was just at the U.S. Open last night and the U.S. Open is not the USTA was not allowing any non-broadcast media on the grounds, but they did have 100 percent fan attendance. Right. So so I think that we do kind of we are a little bit afraid that this is going to be a precursor for limiting access on a permanent basis. And what that does mean, while there are certainly leagues that have recognized the um, the importance of having independent media, but it does mean that you just have leagues being more capable of having more of a stranglehold on the narratives and on the stories that are being told. And that that doesn't serve the audience well, that doesn't serve the readers well. Um, and and that is that is definitely a concern that we'll continue to have. Chad, this is the first year um, where like sports gambling really is a big player in the NFL. Um, obviously people have been able to gamble before, you know, uh, both of uh, me, you and Kavitha are, are certainly, um, uh, veterans of all the DraftKings and FanDuel ads that w- was at 2015, where basically you couldn't turn around without seeing one of those companies advertise on a game. I think if I'm wrong in my year, I apologize, but I think anybody listening knows what I'm talking about. Um, but this year, like the NFL has like multi-million dollar agreements with, um, with gambling books and they're going to be allowed to have commercials um during games and there is a limit to it but it exists 
And so, Chad, I wonder from you, you know, we have been on these press conferences where the broadcasters are continuing to say, you know, I'm going to take it slow. Clearly, they're following the NFL's lead, whatever the NFL says, um, they're going to follow. But, you know, what do you, what do you make of this? Like, will... I don't know if like, you know, I don't I don't know if every we're we're gonna be getting touts on games anytime soon. That said, this feels a little bit hypocritical. If you're in the NFL and you're taking all this money from from these enterprises, like why not have your broadcasters discuss this during the game? I mean, who are you hiding this from? You're already taking the cash. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what happens on Sunday nights, Rich, because uh, Al Michaels, as long as he's been around, has made the cryptic references to the point spread late in games and, and what's at stake. And uh, it became sort of a, especially in Sunday night football, the last 14, 15 years, uh, became something you kind of look forward to when the game was tight or, um, you know, when, when there were some things in doubt uh, in, in terms of which way the money was going to go late in the game. Uh, he had a real gift for that, and I, I'm curious now if he if he just straight up addresses the the point spread if they allow that, or if he continues to uh, play it the way that he always has. Um, it was interesting. I, I don't know if this is the first day that they've done it, but I, when I turned on the NFL Network this morning, that the betting lines were running across the ticker, and I can't remember ever noticing them before. I, I, if I had to guess, I would say this was day one of it, and. Uh, uh, when the league, uh, you know, the NFL network does some pretty great work, but you can call it the league arm. And when the league arm is doing that, um, that's an indication of how full on the embrace is between the uh, gambling and the NFL, even if they're going to still kind of try to pretend like it's at an arm's length now. Could you think you want to, you won't put your Bloomberg old Bloomberg hat on and, and, and how do you, how do you see this, uh, this? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really wild. I think I think it was 2015, the year that you're referencing, that I I was on a panel at South by Southwest about the future of sports betting, and obviously, like we had an ethicist on there, um, you know, somebody who works in uh, combating corruption in sport, obviously UK based, because they've had a lot more years to deal with this than than we have. Um, but you know, my opinion on this as somebody who does not bet on sports because I kind of consider it to be insider trading when you work in our industry, but that it's such it's such a gigantic industry um, that has been existing underground that beginning at above ground. I think Al Michaels said something to the effect of like, I've, I've always had to come through the back door or the side door with these references. And I guess now they're letting me come through the front door, um, which is which is kind of how, you know, like, let's let's stop pretending like this isn't happening. Right. And and let's bring this out in the open. You know, we, we can have um, honest and frank discussions. Obviously, the point spread like half half the reason half of football fans are football fans is because of games. Gambling. And I don't know, like we can have we can have all kinds of arguments about what that means to the integrity of the game, but that's also just reality. So I think just having an honest and frank conversation and talking about what we're actually talking about here is really important. You know, it's interesting, Kavitha. I want to stick with you in chat. I want you to answer this as well. Uh, Kavitha, if you were in charge of The Athletic, if you were the, the, the managing editor of The Athletic, would you allow your, um, your staff to uh, legally wager on the sports they cover? 
I don't think so. Um, but I there's a, also a reason I don't have that power. So that is a personal decision, an ethical decision that I've made for myself as a journalist. And as somebody who covers all sports, that means that I don't gamble on any sport. I don't think that I necessarily, as a generalist, have more information than the average fan. But I definitely have access to that information. I probably get, I mean, it took years for my college fantasy football league to allow me in. Like, we went to quorum about it. Like, you know, it was a whole, it was a whole thing thing um because you know i mean and and there's a trust there that when i get a breaking news alert about a player who has been injured i won't act on that until that becomes public knowledge right so on a similar level i do think that there is a there is a level of kind of insider trading y that things that make me a little bit uncomfortable and i also wouldn't just want any kind of even if you're just doing this subconsciously, I wouldn't want any kind of like subconscious influence of if you have money on a game to affect the way that you cover something. Hmm. So, uh, Chad, same question. I think it's just stupid to bet. I mean, I'm sitting here trying to do uh, uh, earlier today, trying to do um, our football picks. You pick each game against the spread and they're all impossible. I mean, how do you look at uh, a three point spread and say, Oh, uh, the, the Patriots are going to cover that against Miami or, you know, Miami's uh, always plays well at the start of the year. Nobody knows anything about this. The people in Vegas know because they're dedicated to it 24 seven. That's why they have all those giant casinos and they take all your money and you win just enough to stay addicted. I, 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 I think a lot of sports writers probably do bet. Maybe some of them feel like they have inside information, but uh, for the most part, that's not going to benefit you. You're going to lose more than you win in the end. And, uh, I guess it's the thrill of it or uh, the the addictive addictive nature of it or something like that that keeps people doing it but it it feels like a really uh a really ne- a really bad way to uh, go about things if you're a sports reporter. Yeah, it's in- it's a really interesting question. Um one legally I don't think you could do it. Uh well, I take that back. I mean, I guess if you're a private I know business people do. Yeah, if you're a private business could be if I guess you could sort of say like one of your terms of employment here is um, is not to bet. I just, I, I, I don't think I find it tough if it's legal in sort of the state that your business practices in to, um, it's not here. Yeah. Then to tell your employees they can't do it at the same time. I am, I totally agree with both of you. And one of the reasons that, um, that I do not, uh, bet on any kind of regular basis. I, I will certainly say that, like when I've been to Las Vegas or places like that, I certainly like will go to a sports book and you know bet nominal uh, some dollar amounts for a day because I just thought it was fun. But I've always believed I don't know if you guys agree with me as a sports reporter that I need to protect myself from my own hubris, thinking I know more about something because I work in the business. When the reality is, like I I don't think that's the case. Um, like I, one time I tracked cause I really know women's basketball. I feel like in the 99th percentile of sort of all Americans. And I just tracked one year. I'd like, um, how I did on betting women's college. I didn't bet by the way, just, you know, pretend bet on women's college basketball in the WNBA. And I might've only been at like 52%, 51%. Um, so yeah, I was more plus than minus, but it wasn't like, I wasn't hitting 80% or anything like that. And as um, any gambling expert will tell you, the really the only way to sort of do this successfully is to be disciplined and and to you know not over wager and stuff like that. And yeah, and I just wonder if I don't know, Kavith. I almost feel like that if you like you cover a team or something like that and you think you know, 
Um, you may not know as much as you think regarding the, the, the gambling part, but I, I do believe these ga- – the one thing I'll sort of leave you with on this, and then we'll just move to a topic, and Kavitha, Chad, you're welcome to comment. One thing I am near, I am near certain of is you are going to see traditional reporters, traditional sports writers ultimately uh, – heading more and more to these places like Caesar Sportsbook and stuff like that. I, I think there's so much money there that they're eventually going to land like, you know, an Adrian Wojnarowski type or a Sham Charnaya type. And I, I just, I think they're eventually going to be the home of content for, you know, some of these writers and reporters who have traditionally been at like an ESPN and the athletic. I just, I think the money, I think the money's too great for, for individuals not to eventually go there. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that. And I also like, you know, I I have a really hard time placing judgment on other people. Again, like my decision on not betting on sports is a very personal ethical question. But I also think it's super refreshing to hear you and Chad both kind of allude to the fact that like as much as as we cover these things and and especially beat writers can get so in the weeds and are experts on the teams that they cover, Sometimes this is actually just guesswork and we don't say that part out loud um, when it comes to making these predictions. Um, And the other part of that is, you know, if you talk to any beat writer, um, for example, a a beat writer who covers a team who has a vote um, for a national award, they will tell you like, you know, I have horse blinders on around my one team. That doesn't mean that I have any level of expertise as to what the other 29 teams are doing in this league. Right. And, And you have a little bit of kind of a focused mentality when it comes to that. So I do think and frankly, like as journalists, like not all of us make a whole ton of money. <laughs> so it's just, uh, you know, being protective about where where you put your money and where you where you gamble, I think, is is uh, is a consideration. My my gambling uh, lies with blackjack and poker. I will say that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think about this topic a lot. I just I, I, I find it interesting. And um, there are there are ethical minefields galore. Kavithi, you said, like, if I. You know, if I'm covering, let's say, a baseball team, and I know that a pitcher, uh, because that pitcher told me in confidence, or let's say a teammate told me in confidence that that pitcher's shoulder's really hurting, and they're not getting anything close to the velocity that they normally get, and that pit- that person is a starting pitcher, that gives me a massive advantage in theory if I was going to bet on that game. So I, you know, like you do have an advantage. The reality is, like as we have both, as all three of us know in sports, like. Well, sometimes like that pitcher with a with a hurt shoulder has the game of his life, right? You know what I mean? Like it just it's or or something else happened. So you don't know you don't always know. But it also it kind of also speaks to like it also speaks to like a very like evolving notion of what ethics and journalism means, right? Like I did Jeff Perlman's podcast a couple of weeks ago and I'm like very like brazen about having grown up a Yankees fan and being one and you know, I'm a New York sports team fan, um, born and raised. Congrats and on Jeter. Asked, Thank you. I know. I, I, I was telling Richard before we, we started recording that I have all five of these hours on on, on my DVR um, of this coverage. But, um, you know, he asked me a very, a very valid question, which is, you know, there is definitely a, a an older guard of, of, of media that would say you should not have any fandom. You can't wear your fandom on your sleeve. And that is a direct conflict of interest for objectivity in covering your sport. And I don't disagree with that. Um, And I I think that betting kind of falls along those lines. It's not necessarily you have an emotional fandom, but you definitely have a monetary link to, uh, to, to some of these, these things that you may or may not cover. Um, And, and it just, it just result, it can result in a lot of messiness. 
Yeah. All right. Let's. Uh, yeah. All true. By the way, in terms of fandom, like I think you just got to be fair and accurate. Um, three. I think you just have to be honest about it. Like none of us became sports writers yeah, because we exactly. didn't love sports, like, I mean, like, right? Like, I, I'm, when I'm when I'm on the air in Toronto, I'm incredibly honest. I'm like, my life is a million times better if the Raptors and Blue Jays win. Like, so obviously, I have a vested interest in them winning. Uh, I mean, that said, if like something happens, I'm going to be honest in and accurate and be honest in my opinion about something. But that's just the reality of like life. If a team is winning, it's better. It's better for the city. It's better for me. And right. And, um, that's I the Bob Ryan thing. Yeah. If you, if readers know that, I feel like they, I feel like they, um, um, they respect it, right? You just got to yeah. just sort of like deal with them and be like, yeah, I mean, like I'm a big Pascal Siakam fan. Like if something mm-hmm. happened to him, you know, I'd obviously talk about it, but I really want him to do well. I think he's a good dude. I, I like, like watching him play. And, and, uh, you know, I think if readers know that or viewers or listeners know that, then I feel like, you know, they'll, they'll at least, they may disagree with you, but at least they can judge you on an honest prism. The only way to circumvent bias is to acknowledge biases that you have. Like all of us have per, like particular perspectives. And I'll just add one one thing. Obviously, when Derek Jeter retired, I wrote an extremely purple. I took my sports writer hat off and I put my fan hat on and I wrote an extremely purple column about what he and that those Yankees teams meant to me as a fan. The day he announced his retirement, however, the column I wrote was now can the Yankees get a shortstop with rain? <laughs> so. I love it. Yeah, the, the objective thing, the most objective thing you can do is admit that you have those biases that, uh, but, and explain to readers or listeners or whatever it is why you have them, what it is about this person that you like, why you give them the benefit of the doubt on a certain thing. And I think that, um, you know, that, as you said, Richard, that opens up trust with them because they know you're, they know you're not, it, it's not human nature to be objective on things 100% of the time, even if your job says you're supposed to be. It's just not, it's not practical and it's not realistic. Yeah. I mean, it just, again, like, I mean, just the reality is like, um, you know, this would be true, Chad, for you at the Globe and certainly me when I was at Sports Illustrated. Like if a team won, if your team won in that market, I mean, we did a commemorative for God's sakes. We, we literally made money on championship teams. The Boston Globe is going to sell a ton more um, newspapers and have a ton more traffic if the Red Sox win uh, the World Series. You know, the athletic uh, in certain markets, if that team wins, is probably going to sell more subs. It's just, I mean, that's just. Oh, that's Bob just Ryan has always said, and I, this is kind of how the, the model that I follow, um, just because he's someone I always looked up with, up to forever. Uh, it, it's good for everybody when, when the team wins. People are in a good mode. People are reading your stuff. Uh, the paper is selling, making money. You're getting to travel and go cover cool things. And it's just a, a good vibe all around in the city. So, of course, you, uh, it's understandable to want to see the team do well. It doesn't mean you're sitting there on the sideline pumping your fist when Jason Tatum is a three-pointer. But, you know, it's, it, it, it's beneficial in a lot of different ways if the teams succeed. Even though in sports radio, if the teams suck. That tends to be uh, uh, pretty good True. for them. It's a weird, it's a weird, yeah, that's sort of the weird paradox there. All right, let's, let's finish up on, uh, on this college football came back this week. Um, very good viewership numbers to me, not unexpected at all. I think what's been clear about the pandemic, Kavitha, uh, when it comes to viewing is that people want to watch sporting events with crowds. Like they want the noise. They want me, the atmosphere, they want the enthusiasm. And so, um, college football this weekend was exciting. It was exciting to, to watch. So I have sort of two things on this one. Um, and Chad, same, be the same questions for you. Do you think this continues throughout the year? 
that college football gets sort of this boost that it got on the first week? Or was it about pent up demand and excitement for week one? And then we'll sort of see what happens afterwards. And the second thing is, and um, this was brought up my, my colleague, the athletic John Walters, which I thought was interesting. Where, 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 where does do college football announcers have any responsibility to discuss COVID and protocols during the game? Uh, college football broadcasters are cheerleaders galore. I mean, I'm just going to be blunt. They're, they essentially, to me, are almost apparatuses of the athletic departments because ESPN and Fox are, are are in business with them. That that said, um, it's an interesting question to me. I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that the broadcasters should chastise the kids or or anybody at all. And in a lot of these places, like these, the you know, kids were double backs, et cetera. I'm just wondering, do they have any kind of responsibilities broadcasters to discuss it, even though I don't think they're going to discuss it? So, Kavitha, I'll go to you. It's sort of two parts. One, momentum uh, for real versus momentum week one. And then secondly, broadcaster responsibilities, if any, on this. I mean, I think that I think it's a for the, to answer your first question. I think it's a combination of both. I think that yes, there's momentum. There's absolutely pent up demand here. I think they'll even out a little bit, but I do think that numbers are, and viewership is going to be better than it was last season, which was extremely disappointing for college football, right? And I think a big part of that, you know, I, I had a, a Twitter exchange with um, with Mark Cuban about this actually, um, out of a Marist poll that um, that our old friend Jane McMahon has put together, um, which kind of posited love Jane, um, which kind of kind of posited that one of the reasons for declined viewership last year that we might see rebound this year was people like watching sports, especially college sports, I'm going to say in a group like at a bar or um, at home with a with a bunch of people. And that was not a thing that we could do last year. And now we can do that more. I think that's going to, to make a huge difference here. Um, I also think that if you look at the matchups, I mean, you put Notre Dame and Florida State together, they're going to put up numbers, right? Um I, I do think on to answer your second question, you know, this is something that we talk about a lot, um, not just when it comes to COVID or the ethics of, of whether you, you have a responsibility to talk about it um, during the game. But we talk about this a lot when there's a player who's been accused of, of domestic violence or sexual assault. And and what is, you know, the protocol of how often do you have to talk about it when that person takes the field and that kind of thing? I do think there is a responsibility to acknowledge it. I think that, again, horse blinders don't serve anybody well. But I don't also know if a lot of our college football booths are equipped to know how and when to do that artfully. So I think the easiest thing is to just avoid it. All right, Chad, what about, same thing. What about you? Yeah, the second part first. I mean, I don't know if they're obligated to say something or if there's a, a, a subtle way for them to do it. I think it takes some nuance on the broadcaster's part to mention it without pissing off 40% of the fan base or you know whatever percentage that is that uh, is in denial about all this it's probably lower but it feels like larger but uh, I, I'm sitting there watching the Wisconsin game and it was an absolutely great scene and in the back of my mind I'm thinking this kind of looks like a super spreader event you know when they're sitting there doing jump around the place is absolutely packed everybody's having a great time and you you have that in your mind still and you're going to have it in your mind for a while and you probably should at this point. And I, you know, I was in and out on that game, but I don't remember hearing anything about, uh, boy, you know, awfully big crowd here. Uh, hope people are masking up or any, you know, everybody's vaccinated or anything like that. It's just, uh, it, uh, it, it, it's that nagging thing that is in your mind as you're watching it. And it has to be in the broadcast's minds as they're calling it. So, um, 
maybe it's their own instincts that keep them from saying anything about it. Maybe it's uh, something close to a mandate from their bosses not to address it because they just want that good vibe of college football back on their broadcasts. But uh, it, 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 it is something that has to be in viewers' minds, at least when they're sitting there watching it. Yeah, it's a, first of all, it's a, it's a lot of good points there. But you, first of all, I, I absolutely think they're uh, – I mean, the the ESPNs of the world can sort of deny it, but I absolutely think they're producers and are – Don't dwell on it, at least. Yeah, let's not dwell on it. And okay. by the way, um, like I, I, I am not one, and you can't find this from me anywhere, who, who said shut down college football last year or anything like that. What I do think would just be honest with the audience would be like, okay – um, here's like sort of the University of Wisconsin. Let's just take Wisconsin. Here's the University of Wisconsin's um, coronavirus protocols at the stadium. Um, here's like the numbers that we have in terms of, you know, what we think uh, people um, at the stadium are, are vaccinated or not. Like here's sort of uh, what the teams uh, and or the athletic departments have have said about it. And, you know, we know it's a, uh, um, we know it's a talking point among people who follow college football, so we just wanted to spell all this out for you. This, these are the facts, and and now you have the facts. Like I don't even think you know they're not going to go into like some kind of um, you know vaccination anti-vaccination argument. Yeah, you don't have to be preachy that's, about it. That, I think that's exactly I just, I the way like to do it. Responsibility is not the right word. I guess I just wish there was a little more sort of like an educational or informative aspect to at least sort of not be afraid to go down the road. But again, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I also know that like, if you know, you're some college football broadcaster and you go down that road and all of a sudden you got 50,000 people piling you on Twitter because like, you know, some large site that's, that's sort of thinks that you're, you're, you know, making a, uh, you know, a, a pro vaccination statement like goes after you. I, you know, I get it. They, they don't want the hassle. Um, but I do think they have such a massive platform that like, I, I do think they could educate people at least in terms of um, presenting like the facts that are out there. And, you know, there's an important message to the public to be like, Hey, the reason why the stadium's out there and the reason why all these kids are there is, you know, because 90% of them have been vaccinated. Like that to me would be an important message if that's indeed the stat. Anyway, that's, um, I'm glad you guys addressed that because I do think there's a lot of uh, nuance. Let me finish with this. That's sort of a very similar topic. Uh, Chad, what was your reaction when you saw that, uh, I believe, uh, um, Andrew Marshan and the New York Post reported that John Smoltz and Al Leiter um, will not appear in studio for MLB Network after refusing to receive uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, MLB Network uh, is allowing them on air, so they're, they're still going to be on air um either I guess at their house, uh, et cetera. But there the there's a there's a protocol provision that if you work in the studio at MLB Network, you're to be vaccinated and Smoltz and Lighter, at least based on uh Andrew Marchand's reporting, um, have have not done that. Yeah. I mean my first reaction was that they're morons and it's completely disappointing. <laughs> I, I just saw a picture of Smoltz at Cooperstown today or yesterday sitting there, no mask on, signing autographs like in this little cramped space for people. It's just uh it's disappointing because they, they should know better, but um, we'll see if there's any more consequences here as we get closer to the playoffs. And uh, apparently their plan is to still have at least Smoltz, Smoltz on site. Yeah. 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 And uh, maybe Fox doesn't have that same. You think so? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, Fox Sports, though, I know Fox Sports employees have been vaccinated, yeah. a ton of them. So I don't know if it's required or not, but. Uh, no, they just keep it on the, they keep it quiet that, you know. Yeah. What about you, Kavitha? How do you see that? I, I, I am, I'll give you my opinion after you give yours. 
Go ahead. I, I was also extremely disappointed. And like Chad, my first thought was these guys are going to be at Cooperstown with a bunch of octogenarian legends, yeah. um, unvaccinated. I, I also thought about Bob Boone literally quitting his career with the Nats doing this with like Aaron Boone being a heart patient, right. by yeah. the way. Um, and and I, I just don't understand where, like at, at what level the diffidence overtakes the compassion or the common sense or just the, the self like the survival instincts you're literally jeopardizing your own career like at, at this point that's, that's um and and with with mlb network in particular i think that it also has a lot to do with local restrictions i mean they're based in new jersey right. and new jersey and new york have been very um you know very proactive in 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 having some of these requirements and restrictions so i think it's i think it's just dumb and disappointing all around i guess the thing i would say is this and and maybe this is uh, unfortunately sort of where we are like i i i guess i remained I mean, this is me being either naive or cynical or both like i am stunned that you would put a 1% lottery ticket broadcasting career potentially on the line mm-hmm. for this. You know what I mean? Like, and by the way, Al Leiter and John Smoltz, obviously from their baseball careers, you presume unless they you know, spent it on Ferraris and Maseratis, like have, a, have enough money to live the rest of their life, not have to work. So I get that money's not an issue, but like this is like the 1% of 1%. Like you have hit the lottery ticket in broadcasting. John Smoltz is the analyst for the World Series. Right. Like, th- th- you know, you mean there's only been like... And he hates the modern game of right. baseball. But I'm That's saying like there, there's only been like 12 of them in history, like in that right. chair, right? Al Leiter is on um, a massive uh, baseball... Network, and really good at it. Like, He's great. And very good mm-hmm. at it. And mm-hmm. like one of the, you know, one of the most important sort of baseball outlets, if not the most important um, uh, broadcast outlets that are out there. And just to like risk that over not getting vaccinated, it, it's, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around it. Like these guys, they, they, they obviously have access to information and to science, you know, assuming people still believe in science. And so, you know what I'm saying? Kavitha, like, I might, I, on a no, purely, I mean, on a purely, so... you, I, you, I, I like talking to you because of your business background. On like a purely capitalistic yep. um, viewpoint, it's crazy <laughs> that they would not do it just based on that alone. The opportunity cost of not getting vaccinated exactly. here, right? Like this is what we're talking about, and that's what I mean when I say I don't understand the calculus that is going into um, just like the self-preservation or the self-survival, not overtaking the diffidence and the um, the headstrongness about an anti-vax position. Here. I'll give you four words: they watch Fox News. That that's why they're getting <laughs> constant horrible misleading information night after night after night and it worms into your brain and i i you know i don't know if al leader lighter and john smoltz or or facebook guys are going down youtube wormholes doing their own research but i guarantee you they're watching tucker carlson and that's where that misinformation comes from from people like that and it's on there every single weeknight for week after week month after month and that's why so many people's minds are poisoned even relatively or presumably intelligent people who have a lot of life experience like those those two guys have been all around the country and are famous and made a lot of money and done a lot of things but you can you can very easily get misled these days if you're um if you're watching the wrong stuff and i that's got to be what it is that they've got to be watching television shows like that and believing what they're airing 
Well, at what point is this also just hubris? Like I'm, you know, I'm a Hall of Fame in in Smoltz's. I'm untouchable. Like, you know, Major League Baseball player, former professional athlete. Like I, I am not susceptible to a virus like this. And, and, you know, at what point is that also part of this calculus? There it is, Chad. You've, you're not going to prompt all these one star (laughs) reviews on my podcast. I'm going to sort down the, uh, sort down the, the, the iTunes ratings. Uh, Me and Kavisa are getting four stars. It's your podcast. That's it. That's the, the end of my uh, podcast career. I mean, the, the, I, I, I've worked so hard to make this a, uh, you know, I'm used to being an acquired taste. I've worked so hard to make this a niche, low level (laughs) podcast, Kavitha. And, and Chad has destroyed uh, that. All right. Thank you both for coming on. Kavitha Davidson, of course, my colleague at The Athletic, is a sports and culture writer. There, host of the Culture Calculus podcast, uh, former host of The Lead. And uh, I think as many people in sports media would say, honestly, one of the best voices of any person in the sports media that's out there. Kavitha, I've always oh, thought, thank you. seriously, you, I, I am positive you can make millions of dollars like a voiceover artist if you found the right agent to... Uh, uh, to do that, I don't know that world enough, like the voiceover world, but I feel like there's money for you to be had out there. So. If any agents are listening, I could I could use the money. So. Here, here's one thing I can tell you: <laughs> trust me, there are agents listening to this podcast. All right, Chad Finn is the sports media writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. His voice is not nearly as cool as Kavitha's, but I mean, if you want to like pitch like a New England lobster roll or something like that, he does like have that authentic Maine <laughs> accent. I do not. I have a generic New England accent. <laughs> Generic New England uh, is. By the way, Chad, is there a is there a difference between a Maine accent and like a Boston accent? Yeah, but I'm not going to do it for you. Okay, all right. So, but there, but I'm saying there is like I, I have a lot of family in Massachusetts. They, I feel like they do have Massachusetts accents, and you do sound a little different. Like there, I feel like there is a distinction between living in Maine and living in Mass. Yeah, it's it's definitely different. I think the Massachusetts one is a little bit more edge to it. To 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 be kind. All right. All right. You've learned. You've, we've all learned so much for the last uh, episode ever of this podcast. All right, thank you, Kavitha and Chad. As always, uh, I appreciate your time and insights. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, my guests today. Really, two excellent segments. First up, Kevin Kevin Clark of the Ringer. Check his uh, fine work out there. And thank you to Kavitha and Chad for popping on a roundtable. If you like these kind of podcasts, please head to the uh, Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, iTunes. Or google play page uh leave us a review five-star review and uh, uh really really helpful some nice words that's how this podcast continues as always thank you to patrick uh, antonetti for uh, his work thanks to everybody came to 13 some if you want to head to the archives uh podcast before this we had molly mcgrath uh talking about returning to college football new york times writer christopher clary he's got a big memoir out on roger federer before that seth rollins of the wwe who went behind the scenes on just sort of how he handles media how he handles promos and David Perter on the intersection of gambling and the sports media before that Rebecca Lowe from Tokyo. Um, so hopefully there's something in the archives that you'll appreciate. Again, thanks to everybody, Canes 13. Thank you to Patrick, and thank you, of course, to you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.